0: Once upon a time, there once lived a magician. Where are my kids in here? Kids church, this is family worship. Raise your hand at me, I wanna see. Oh, there's Anna, yeah, there's Brenny, good. Hey, you know what, at the very end, we're gonna take communion. And since y'all are sitting on the front row, can you help me pray for the communion, the bread and the, the cup? You can, cool. Just be hanging in there, it'll be about an hour and a half. It's like an eternity, like Mr. Kim said. He once lived a magician. He was a magician and he performed on a cruise ship. And uh, he performed every few nights, uh, usually a couple of times, and then the people would all change, and then there'd be a new group of people, and he'd perform a couple of times. and So the people would change all the time, except for one, uh, one individual. And it wasn't a people at all. It was a a parrot. It was this parrot. And it was the captain's parrot. And the captain loved this parrot. I mean, it was like his best parrot, best of buds. And so uh, that that parrot really loved the magician's show. And so he would never miss the show. And so the Problem arose later on after several months of this cruise just doing its thing and this, music, this, this magician doing his performance every couple of three nights. The problem arose that the parrot knew and had figured out all the tricks, and so the magician would be like bah, 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 bah. and then the bear, and then the parrot would say it's up his sleeve, up his sleeve. And the magician did not like that. And then a few minutes later, he would do something else. Rock, rock. It's a false bottom on the trunk. Rock, false bottom. Rock. Oh man, that that magician just grew to hate that parrot. The problem was the parrot was the captain's favorite, and there was no getting rid of the parrot. And so every show. Parrot would show up, and he'd be putting on a good show, and then he would he would just mess it all up every single time. And the people actually liked it; they thought it was like a comedy act, like a pipping. Yeah, this is this is hilarious. But the magician did not. He was a professional, did not like it one bit. And then one night at one of the shows, unexplainably, the boat began to sink. I mean, like. Quick! Within minutes, this boat is sunk. Everybody has jumped overboard. They're holding onto wreckage and, and life rafts, and they're just all just they're all safe. I mean, it's a good it's a it's a happy story. No one died in this in this uh, off this cruise ship. But they're all just floating around there. And sure enough, wouldn't you know it, the magician grabs a chunk of this big old wreckage, and the only other thing on that life preserving wreckage was the parrot, and as time went on, the first hour passes, total silence. Parrot doesn't say anything, magician doesn't say anything, I mean, magician definitely doesn't even wanna be there with that parrot, but it's quiet, but they're looking for help. Another hour passes, still no rescue boats, third hour passes, this is, this is becoming a little bit of alarming. There's still no rescue, and then, but it's still quiet, all you can hear is the the waves and the wind as they just kind of bob in the wreckage, and the longer they go, the wreckage and the pieces and the rafts just kind of can start drifting apart, and so now it really is just silent. It's really quiet, and then it gets to get dark, and then it gets totally dark, and there they are on that piece of wreckage, just kind of bobbing in the water, No rescue lights are coming, no boats are coming. It's dark and sure enough, I mean, this endless night, finally day breaks and those rays of, beautiful rays of sunshine come out over the horizon and the atmosphere starts to warm up. And it was at that moment that the parrot broke the silence and he said, I give up, what did you do with the ship? First Kings, chapter 17 is gonna be our text today. In the hallway before the first service, Pastor Dan said, and what is your text today? I said, 1 Kings, chapter 17, all of it. And I couldn't see his face, but I think he went, oh God, we're gonna be here for a while. I'm gonna try to work through it uh, quickly. And along the way, I'm gonna spotlight a few words There's a half a dozen, actually there's about eight, but we're not gonna get to all of them. There's about a half a dozen words. They all begin with a P and I'm gonna present them to you and all I'm gonna ask is that along the journey through the 17th chapter of 1 Kings, all I ask is that you would open up your hearts and your minds to the Holy Spirit and may you kind of grade yourself along the way. How am I doing with that area of my life? Do I have anything to work on there? Anything to worry about there? And if you happen along the way to say, Rock, I give up, that is no longer there, then I'm going to leave it to the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart and to challenge your heart to uh, reconcile that area. Does that make sense? Maybe it'll make a little bit more sense as we go. Let's open up in prayer, though. Lord Jesus, we're gonna to go to your word. We know that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so I'm just asking that you would do what I can't do, that you would illuminate the words, that you would allow them to come up and, and, and your Holy Spirit would challenge our hearts, challenge our mindsets, challenge our dispositions and uh, make us into better, make us into better than where we are. Uh, call us into greater. Uh, may you speak to us through the life of Elijah. And, uh, and maybe we would be better for it. So, Holy Spirit, we open ourselves and invite you to do your work. In Jesus' name I pray it, amen. All right, Elijah, chapter 17, verse one. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. So here we got our characters. We've got Elijah and we've got Ahab. Now what we know about Elijah is he is a great man. He's a great prophet. In fact, a lot of people, if you ask them, who is your favorite Old Testament character? A lot of people would say, Elijah, he is a, he's amazing, he's awesome. You got any football fans here? Anybody? I, know th- I, didn't say, I didn't say, are you proud of the Cowboys? I said, do you have any football fans here? Yes, thank you. If Elijah were a quarterback, he would likely be Joe Montana. He would, uh, or, or Troy Aitman, we're in Texas, he would be Troy Aitman. He would not be Patrick Mahomes. Uh, Patrick Holmes uh, can aspire to be Elijah one day, give him some more time, and he probably will, but he's not there yet. Elijah has just got, he's just got all this history and he's got all this just built up into, modern, he wouldn't, he might actually be in modern times, and I, and I, I hate to say it, he, he, and, and I know Michael Escamilla is in the room, he might be Tom Brady. He might be, I know, I know, I hear you, sister, I hear you. But, but he's good. He's really good, even though we don't like him. <laughs> <laughs> I like to remind myself that Tom Brady has 188 interceptions. And I like to forget that he has 566 touchdowns and a whole bunch of rings that, f- anyway, let's just move on. He might be Tom Brady. He might be a Joe Montana. He's just that kind of guy. His name means Yahweh is my God. Yahweh is my God is my God, which is interesting when we reread that verse, that first verse, <laughs> he's taunting Ahab, you watch. Yahweh is my God, if you tease those words out in the original language, as Pastor Des would, he would say, and he did say, Yahweh means the covenant-keeping God is strong and able. The covenant-keeping God is strong and able. Elijah believed God, and Elijah knew his word. Ahab is the total opposite of Elijah. Ahab is, a, is a, a mean man, he's an evil man. He married an evil wife. He was weak as a leader. He was susceptible to being manipulated and his wife certainly did that. Uh, if you just jump back just a few sentences in the Bible, we're gonna learn a little bit about Ahab in the verse uh, starting 29 in chapter 16. It says, in the 38th year of Asa, King of Judah. Everybody say, King of Judah. Remember that. Ahab, son of Omri, became King of Israel. Everybody say, King of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of these before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Naboth, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him." Ugh, Ahab's a bad dude. I told you to remember king of Judah, king of Israel. We saw Samaria in there. Let me give you a quick reminder, and I really think this is a reminder. I'm not trying to, trying to sound like I know something that you don't, but it's a reminder, and it's really helpful. And if this is the first time you hear this, it really is helpful as you read through the Old Testament, especially. Uh, remember the first king of Israel? Saul? Saul was followed by David, followed by Solomon. Okay, that took up about 100 years, almost 100 years. At first, all 12 tribes made up the kingdom of Israel. After Solomon, though, Rehoboam took over and he made some bad choices. And you can read about him in the scriptures. He made some bad choices and there was a split about 930 BC, there was a split, and that's when you start seeing the Northern Kingdom, also known as the Kingdom of Israel, they kept the name, and the Southern Kingdom, also known as the, the, the Kingdom of Judah. Now, there were two tribes in the south, 10 in the north, and there were some Levites kind of scattered amongst all of them, but 10 and two, and in the south, it was Judah and it was Benjamin. But Benjamin was so small, they just kept the name Judah. So when you're reading through the Old Testament, oftentimes you'll see king of Israel, king of Judah. And you need to know that, oh, is that northern or southern? And it's important because the northern kingdom of all 19 of their leaders, there was never a good one. It was always they did evil in the eyes of the Lord and you always heard they were worse than the guy before them. And that's kind of how sin is, it just perpetually gets worse. And the southern kingdom was a little better. Out of the the 20, I believe it was, there were six good ones. And coincidentally, the northern kingdom gets defeated far earlier by the Assyrians, but eventually the southern kingdom gets defeated as well by the Babylonians. So just remembering all that, we just read through here, king of Israel, king of Judah, another thing to remember whenever you're going through this, this is just strictly historical, geographical, just kind of helps the story kind of unfold and other stories along it. You'll see capitals uh, mentioned a lot of times too. When you see Jerusalem, we're talking about the south. Jerusalem is the capital of the south where Judah and Benjamin are. Um, you'll see Samaria talked about up in the north. And Samaria is the capital of the north, one of the capitals. I know some of you guys are going, wait, 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 there was more. There were more. There was Shechem and Peniel and Terza and maybe even some others. And, but they were just short-lived capitals. But Samaria is the one I remember, it was the longest one. So again, going back to this scripture, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Asa was king down in the southern, Ahab son of Omri became king of Israel. He was up in the top and we already know since they're all bad up there, Ahab's gonna be bad. And he reigned in Samaria for 22 years. And then it goes on to say he worshiped Baal. Uh, In a nutshell, Baal, Asherah, Moloch, these are all awful, awful religions. They sacrifice humans, they sacrifice babies, there's cult prostitution, there's all sorts of weird stuff. Uh, going on and, and God is just like and you want this you choose this over me what is what is the problem here so you got Elijah and then you got Ahab and there the story starts in verse one now if some of you guys are worried he's only in verse one it gets faster all right they don't all go this slow now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab as the Lord The God of Israel lives, oh yeah, the God of Israel, and I know you're the king of Israel, but your God is Baal, as the Lord, oh, and by the way, my name Elijah means Yahweh is God, and so my God says, whom I serve, whom I serve, you don't serve him, but I serve him, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Elijah is totally picking at Ahab. Not only is he doing this play of words with the whole, I'm the king, you're the king of Israel, but I serve the Lord of Israel, but also the God that he serves, Ahab serves, is the God of fertility and the God of rain and the God of vegetation. And he says, "Um, my God, the real God, Yahweh, that you're supposed to be leading the people, but you're not, um, he ain't gonna send no rain, even though, Rain is your God's thing, but he ain't gonna say no rain. For three and a half years, we'll see who wins. And then he leaves. It's like a one sentence sermon and he leaves. Now, Elijah believes in God. And Elijah believes and knows his word. Um, But Elijah didn't just pull this out of thin air. He didn't just say, oh, It's not gonna rain. No, if you go back and if you know the characteristics of God and the promises of God in the past, you're gonna know that this was something that was talked about already. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 11, you'll find this. This is when Moses was reminding the people. He says, guys, if you will faithfully obey the commands that I'm giving you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your mind, then I will send rain on your land in its season both autumn and spring rains so that you may gather in your grain, new wine and oil. I will provide grass in the fields for your cattle and you will eat and be satisfied. So Elijah was pulling back from what he knew of God. Then he goes on to say, "Be careful or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them," which is exactly what has happened. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will shut the heavens so that it will not rain and the ground will yield no produce and you will soon perish from the good land that the Lord is giving you. The first word, first word that begins with a P is predictable. God is predictable. Now I know when I say that, that kind of rubs you wrong because how could God be predictable? God is, we can't know him. And there's true. There is an unpredictable nature to God. I mean, absolutely. But God is predictable. We know what he loves. We know what he hates. And when we align ourselves with those things or against those things, we are walking in his will. We are walking in his ways. We are walking in his authority. And so Elijah just shows up. And honestly, there's no previous verse that God actually tells Elijah to even say, hey, go tell King Ahab it's not going to rain for three and a half years. It's not there. Now, he may have. I don't know. But he knew his word and he saw what was going on. And they weren't obeying God and they were worshiping other idols and they were doing all these things that Moses warned them about that God told them this was going to happen. So he just steps into the moment and says, Hey, look, this is what's going to happen starting now. Bye bye. And he went bye bye because his life was in danger at this point. So he leaves. Verse 2. Let's pick it up. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Carith Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. Lucky for you, I did some research on ravens. I know we've got some raven connoisseurs in the room, some raven aficionados. I was not one but I spent 15 to 30 minutes studying ravens earlier this week. And I've got some things to share with you about ravens. So if you're one of those aficionados, just bear with us. Ravens are smart. Scientists say that ravens are in that same class as dolphins and chimpanzees. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Anna, did you know that? Ravens, they're like dolphin smart. Amazing, I didn't know that. They talk like parrots. They mimic human voices. And if you go on YouTube, you can watch all these ravens just talking to you. And you know that Edgar Allan Poe, nevermore. There's tons of ravens saying nevermore. It's like the thing for ravens. They also use gestures. They'll point with their beaks, and it's weird. They'll be like, hey, you, yeah, you, you go that way. I'll go this way. And then they'll go that way and this way. It's just, they just, they gesture. It's, it's a, they're smart birds. A weird one, though, even more than that, is ravens show empathy to other ravens that they like. If one of them's having a bad day or loses a fight, they'll go over to him and say, hey, it's all right, buddy. Hang in there. They'll also hold grudges. If a raven's mean to another raven, they'll remember it for years, years, and that raven will come back in and they will remember it. So cool. But the thing that applies to this scripture, because you're going, why are you telling me all this, is that ravens, hide food they are the squirrels of the air (laughs) they hide food and what's really crazy because they're smart and they know other ravens are smart they'll actually you can see it they'll actually come over here and they'll fake hide food (laughs) and then they'll hide it over here and then other ravens will be like oh you got me (laughs) and then other animals are like what happened (laughs) because they're not as smart as the ravens and the dolphins are in the ocean so that doesn't they can't even though they're smart. So they hide food. The miracle here is God could have supernaturally just presented food every single day that he needed it to eat in the morning and the night, but he didn't. He used nature, and you'll see that all the time through the scriptures. When a miracle happens, he'll use his nature, he'll use the natural creation to accomplish his will. It's no less of a miracle, I think it's more amazing. I mean, like when the when the sea split and the Israelites went through it, something caused that split. I mean, did something get diverted upstream? Did something? I, I don't know. But the cool thing is, it happened right then. And then, as soon as they all got across, it closed in and and, and killed all the Egyptian army. It's just amazing. But God oftentimes uses nature. So ravens hide food. Uh, last thing about ravens, and I'll move on because. But the, the purpose here is that that uh, that God is providing for. Uh, Elijah and so the word here is God is a provider now again you might find yourself today going rock where did my provision go if this is the part that the Holy Spirit taps you on the heart and says hey you're not seeking me to be your provider you're not trusting me then you need to respond to the Holy Spirit in this area because of this word others you might be like no trust me I learned a long time ago that God's my provider and I'm okay and then we'll move on Last thing about ravens though, this is too good. If you ever see a flock of ravens together, they're not actually a flock. A group of ravens are called an unkindness of ravens. An unkindness of ravens. Throughout history, people are scared to death of ravens. There's lots of myths and folklore and stuff about ravens. They're evil and all this, it's an unkindness of ravens. If you get a, a, you'll have a flight of doves, a gaggle of geese, a band of pigeons, a gang of wild turkeys, a congress of eagles, but an unkindness of ravens. It's just not fair. They're just misunderstood birds. The only one that was worse was a murder of crows. (laughs) (laughs) A murder of, (laughs) crazy. God is your provider. God is a provider. Biblically, ravens, to make it even stranger, are unclean animals. If you look up in Leviticus, I think it might be chapter 26, there's a list of unclean animals, and ravens are one of those animals. It's interesting how God would use an unclean animal to provide for the man of God. Now, if you're a Jew today, and you're following that list of unclean and clean animals, That doesn't mean you can't have a raven or look at a raven. It just means you can't eat them. I mean, dogs are unclean animals, but a Jew can have a pet dog or a cat. It's okay. I don't recommend eating them, regardless of your religious affiliation. (laughs) And then finally... Talking about provision, the raven represents God's gracious provision all throughout scripture. I just found this in my studies, but I didn't know that before. You look in Job, it talks about the raven being a source of provision. If you look in the Psalms, you'll see it come up over and over and over. And then if you look in Luke, Luke twenty-two, twenty-four, 24, and again, this might be something that you need to be reminded of. The, the, the scripture here says, and this is New Testament, says, then Jesus said to his disciples, who said it? Jesus, okay, this is gonna be a good part, right? Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. So maybe that's the P that the Lord puts on your heart today. Verse nine, or sorry, sorry, verse five through nine. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Carith Ravine. Man, I almost just don't even want to step over that. He did what the Lord had told him. If we could just do that, I could just be quiet and just sit down. If we all just promised to do what the Lord had told him, that would would solve a lot of our problems. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Carith Ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. Everyone say stayed there. Thank you. I'm just doing that to make sure you're awake. A lot of slumberness just seeping over the room. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening and he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. If Elijah had stayed where he was and not gone to the Kerith Ravine, then the Lord would not have fed him. If Elijah would not have gone to Zarephath, then the Lord would not have fed him. One was through a raven, one was through a widow, but it was important that he went there. Don't expect the blessing, the provision the next envelope as Joel Gregory masterfully presented a couple weeks ago. If you're not where God told you to be. God is positioning us. Matthew 6.33 says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will take care of themselves. Food, jobs, clothing, money. God is positioning us, not just geographically all the time either. It was simple with Elijah, it was go to this specific GPS coordinates and I'll feed you there, and then go to this specific geographical coordinates and I'll feed you there. It's that way a lot of times. Sometimes the Lord says, go here, go there, leave here, come here. But sometimes it's not even geographical. Sometimes it might be a state of mind or a disposition. Seek first the kingdom of God and I'll take care of all these other things. The kingdom of God is not a place, it's not 4700 North Beach Street, it's, it's different. But you'll be in the right place, and then the Lord will provide. Philippians 4.19 says God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God is a provider, and it is somewhat dependent upon our positioning, so I just wanna remind you that God is positioning. Maybe that's the one that the Holy Spirit's saying, yeah, you're in the wrong place. Your heart's thumping. Other people are like, I'm cool, move on, next board. I'm good. But some of you are going, oh, I know the Lord wanted me to go there. I know I was supposed to leave and do that. I know I was supposed to not be here anymore. And yet I'm still waiting for the blessing and the provision and the answer here. But he's told me to go there. Yeah, that's the one. Rock. Rock. Jehovah Jireh is the word that was given uh, to describe God's provision. It means God the provider. In Genesis twenty-two fourteen, 14, God was called Jehovah Jireh on Mount Moriah, so remember this, Genesis 22 is when Isaac was tied up and he was laid upon the altar and Abram was about to sacrifice him and at the last second, God supplied a substitute, a ram caught in the thicket. He took the ram, sacrificed the ram instead, and, the, and, and uh, Isaac was spared. Genesis 22:2. i I'd like to read just a little bit of that. Um, and I, wanna, I want you to watch for a couple of things. First thing is, this is the first mention of the word love in the Bible. And I want you to listen for the reverberations of this Genesis 22.2 in John 3.16. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Genesis 22.2 says, God says to Abram, get this, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering as one, on one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you about. And it turned out to be Mount Moriah. Take your son, your only son, the one you love. Doesn't that sound familiar? There's a lot happening on this mountain. God is your provider including salvation. Abram is trusting God and expecting a miracle because he was already told that you're gonna have a son and then you're gonna be the father of a great nation. And then his wife had a lot of trouble, him and his wife had a lot of trouble having a baby and then finally they have Isaac. And now God's asking him to kill Isaac? This is going to shortcut, <laughs> this is going to abort the dream, this is gonna abort the, the promise to be a father of a great nation. Last I checked, you can't have a father. You can't be the father of a great nation if your only son is killed. And so it's my opinion, and not only my opinion, i probably picked this up from Stephen or Des or someone along the way, and I've read it certainly since then. It's my opinion that Abram in sacrificing his child or almost sacrificing his child, he was trusting the Lord for a miracle. And the miracle was going to be not a ram, I think that was out of his scope. I think the miracle he was expecting is, God's gonna raise my baby back to life. So that's happening. But oh by the way, also happening in that moment, I believe that God is differentiating himself from the other gods of the land. All the other gods. Moloch, Asherah, Baal, pick, you pick. And look through all the the histories and the laws, Hammurabi codes and all that kind of stuff. All the other stuff where they talk about just how the cultures worked. They all had some element of human sacrifice. And here in this moment, God says, Abram, I want you to sacrifice your son. And he doesn't even really flinch. He wants to obey God, but he wasn't really that startled by the request. Like He didn't want to do it, neither would I, but he wasn't just like blown away like, how could God ask me to do that? Like if God came to you today in your quiet time and said, and I want you to pray more and I want you to kill your kid, that would startle you. That would say, wait a second, that doesn't really line up with the rest of the verses in my Bible. But Abram hears it because he lives in the context of all these other kingdoms that do this sort of thing and this is the, the cultural milieu is the fancy word for that or just this is what, kind of what goes on and God in the last moment says stop, I'm not that kind of God, that's not what makes me happy. Here's a ram instead, don't hurt your child. Isn't that interesting? So number one, Abram's looking for a miracle. Number two, God is differentiating himself from all the other gods and he says no to human sacrifice. Number three, Later on, you can read it in Chronicles chapter three, verse one, Solomon builds a temple. And you know where he builds that temple? On Mount Moriah, wait a second, same place? Yeah, same place. So this place that God says, go to the area of Moriah and then I'm gonna pick a mountain for you and I'll tell you which one it is when you get there. That same mountain where he's gonna sacrifice Isaac, but instead there's a ram substituted for Isaac. Later on, the Israelites build their temple where they're gonna bring sacrifices over and over and over to make reconciliation and peace with God. Same spot. Did you know that? Many of you did, but the Lord's dropping bread comes along the way and you can come back all these years later, and say, whoa, that doesn't look accidental. That looks like God has a plan. Looks like God has a purpose. This isn't one of our peas, but I'm gonna add it. God is perfect. God is perfect. He's dropping breadcrumbs, but it gets better. Sometime later, Jesus is sacrificed on Moriah. Same place. the Same place that God says, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering as one of the, on the, one of the mountains. Same place that God provided a substitute for Abram. Later on, God provides a substitute for all of us. Mount Moriah. Now you might say, wait a second, Calvary Hill, Golgotha, you're right. Pull up your Google Maps, look at the Temple Mount, put a little heart next to it. Look at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, put a little heart next to it. Look at the Wailing Wall, which is the, the, the wall of the, the old temple, put a little heart next to it. And then look up Gordon's tomb, the garden tomb, the one that Des told me one time, I said, Des, which one is it, is it the Holy Sepulchre where Jesus was buried, or is it the garden tomb? And Des said, I believe it was the garden tomb. But if it wasn't, it ought to have been. <laughs> because today it's nice, it's pretty. It's like what you would, it's probably what it looked like way back then. But today the church of the Holy Sepulchre, they've built a, a monument, this atrocious looking monument over top of the tomb. And then they've built a building over top of that. And it just, you just don't even feel like you're in the right spot. Wherever it is, pull up Google Maps. It's all within a couple thousand feet. It's right there, that's Mariah. God provided a substitute. Then there was an ongoing temple substitutes, the sacrificial system, and then God finished it up and said, "Here's the spotless lamb, the substitute that is going to be the end of all substitutes." Just amazing. But that's boring. Let's move on. Verse seventeen. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse. Finally, stopped breathing. It's amazing how many commentaries I read that said the kid didn't really die. He was just tired. He was just almost dead. He was just swooning. He, all these, so many people just wanna deny the miraculous in the scripture. So if you're reading one of those commentaries, find you a better one. <laughs> he grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him up to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on the bed. Then he cried out to the Lord. And I think this really was a question. Oh, Lord God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out uh, on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, oh, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. Verse 22, the Lord heard Elijah's cry. This reminds me of Psalm 8. Who am I that you would be mindful of me? Who am I that you would even know that I'm even here, that you would even care that I'm here? Who am I that you would be mindful of me? And not just mindful of me, you heard my cry and didn't just hear, you acted on it and you raised this kid from the dead, who am I? The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and he said, look, your son's alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. God is partnering. God wants to partner with you. Like a magician and a parent, but better. Elijah and God partnered to turn a nation from their evil ways and idolatry back towards God. God has always desired to partner with people. Does he need you? No, he does not need you. Does he want you? Does he enjoy the company? Yes. That's, his, that's what it shows through history. He enjoys his people. He doesn't need you, but he wants to partner with you. James 5, 17, if you're one of those people that says, yeah, but I'm not that good. James five seventeen says, Elijah was a man just like us. God is partnering with people. Moses and God partnered to rescue the Israelites from slavery. Nehemiah partnered with God to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Abraham, to father a great nation. David, to slay a giant and then to lead a nation. Deborah, to deliver God's people from foreign oppression. Joseph, partners with God to preserve God's people from drought and famine. Ruth, partners with God and demonstrates an abiding loyalty and devotion. Esther, to preserve God's people from massacre. Jeremiah, to warn God's people of impending disaster if they don't turn back to God. Normal people, just like us, partnering with God. Is he predictable? I think so. Is he a partner in God? I think so. Does he provide? Mm Mm-hmm. Those are all Old Testament. New Testament, a bunch of more on the list. And then today, I was just thinking about just last night, God is partnering with Pastor Dan to lead this ragtag group called Bethesda into the future so that we can accomplish more than we ever could without them. God is partnering with Pastor Dan, partnering with Stephen and Steve and their wives. It's good to say that, by the way, (laughs) to reach Latin America. He's partnered with Larry Adley, Billy Paul, Charlene Allen, and the rest of the, the team at Teen Challenge to heal and restore incredible ladies. Yeah. God is partnering with Brenda Hardiman and Shaler to reach the next generation, Colby Cannon, Joe Howard, Kim Bergstrom, and many others, Robert Gonzalez, many others to act. And behave and operate with integrity and grace in the sector of business that God's put them. Steve Claver, goodness, Wes Alexander. I mean, to put them where they, to operate with grace and integrity in their areas of business. Mindy McCullough in the healthcare arena. Kayla Huff, also in the healthcare arena, but she's on the other end, on the receiving end. And God is partnering with you to show us how to walk in faith. And integrity when you're sick. I'm proud of you. You inspire me. When I grow up, I want to be like Kayla. <laughs> Partner with Dana Bollinger, Ginger Patti, Miss Queen. Where's Ginger at? She's sleeping in it, isn't she? Yeah. See me after I have something for you. Partner with Dana and Ginger and others with Embrace Grace, Embrace Life to reach the lives of beautiful women, put them back on the right path and to save those babies in the process. Becca Goodwin, Brittany Edwards, Amy Lowe, many others who are in the education field. God has partnered with them to be a light in that field. Tons of you moms out there partnering with you to raise a kid. Some one quote I remember from a pastor's conference, 15 years ago, it said the greatest thing you may ever do is not something you do, but someone you raise. And I remember that. A lot of you moms, God has partnered with you, wants to partner with you. Dad, same thing, entertainers, uh, Danny Cooper and his entertainment stuff, just it's amazing. God is a partnering God and I'm totally out of time, I apologize, we'll wrap this up. Verse 18 or sorry, verse, uh, chapter 18, verse one, we'll just finish it up right here. This is a nice spot. We'll skip over God as a preserving God and we'll skip over God as a promoting God because he is those things. We're gonna do these two instead. God is preparing. Verse one, after a long time, oh, long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the land. Now, God is a preparing God. In the third year, that's not fast. That's not fast. Um, After a long time, remember he was like a year and a half or so or maybe less next to the the Kerith Ravine. Then he was somewhere between a year and a half or two years there with the widow and Zarephath. Long time has passed. He's alone by the brook. Just him and the ravens and the creek that keeps getting smaller and smaller. And then he's hiding out in the widow's house because he can't even go to the shops. Because number one, they're in big famine. And number two, if anybody sees him, they're gonna kill him because they know he's Elijah. and He's responsible for all this. He's alone. But God was preparing him. For what? For Mount Carmel. Coming up at the end of chapter 18. The big showdown doesn't come unless you've walked through the preparation stage. And yet isolation, ooh, that's a bad word. Feeling alone, ooh, I got a text this week. I'm alone, I should be married by now. We'll have lunch on Wednesday and we're gonna talk about this. You might be just in wasted time or you might be in a time of preparation. Maybe that's the one. Maybe it's a time of preparation. God often takes people to the solitary place before he takes them to the public place. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness before being launched into his ministry, Matthew four and Luke one. So what if solitude was necessary for your soul's health? We don't do solitude well. We hate it, we try to avoid it, we curse it. But what if solitude was necessary for your soul's health? And there seems to be quite a bit of biblical precedent to this. We mentioned Jesus, 40 days. Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness. Moses also spent 40 days and 40 nights alone with God on Mount Horeb just before they did something big. Elijah spent his time at Carith Ravine and in Zarephath. John the Baptist spent some time in the wilderness, also spent some time in prison. The Apostle Paul spent a lot of time in Arabia. There's lots more examples than that. Most of us don't do solitude very well. I check my phone At the stoplight. That's a problem. Some of you can't go to the bathroom without checking your phone. 35 seconds, what am I gonna do with that time? God is wanting to prepare us. Have we any margin left in our day for God to work? Or have we filled it all up? And lastly, God is present.